Welcome to Grid Talk, a series of conversations with the leaders and innovators shaping the 21st century grid. Hosting the podcast is Marty Rosenberg, an award-winning energy journalist. The series is sponsored by the Department of Energy's Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Now, here's Marty Rosenberg with Grid Talk. Welcome to Grid Talk. Today we have with us Philip Jones up in the Pacific Northwest, who's Executive Director of the Alliance for Transportation Electrification. Hi, Phil. How are you today? Good, Marty. How are you? I'm doing fine. Good. It's uh, an opportune time to connect because EVs are, are increasingly in the headlines. Uh, I'm sure you saw Ford's announcement just uh, yesterday that it was going to invest $11 billion in four factories. Do you think uh, that represents a, a sizable evolution in our commitment to EVs, and where is this all headed? Yes, it does. It's a sizable investment, and as you probably read in the press release, it also had the sizable investment from SK Innovation on the battery side. So we are seeing battery makers, um, OEMs, auto OEMs like Ford really step up now. You know, General Motors, another member of ours in ATE, has this a relationship with LG Chem, and a couple of months ago, they announced some major new battery facilities in Tennessee as well. So the major OEMs in North America are stepping it up. Obviously, there has been talk about onshoring production of batteries and getting a stronger U.S. capability, both in the critical materials that go into batteries, uh, like cobalt and lithium and, and other critical materials, but also training the workforce. And in yesterday's announcement with Ford, they announced a pretty sizable investment in workforce training um, in Texas as well. So I'm very pleased, Marty, in that, you know, this is all coming together. I've been working hard on this for three, four years with my members in the alliance and working with states. And, you know, a number of factors are coming together. So these investments are, are really very, very good news. Part of the infrastructure program that, that's being debated right now um, would create 500,000 charging stations. Uh, yes. And uh, would that in itself go a long ways to eradicating range anxiety? And, and how will it, it change the face of our nation? To some extent, it would. And we're very pleased that the Biden administration uh, put out that commitment. It gets into the details of charging types and infrastructure and power delivery, electric power delivery. We probably don't want to get into those weeds today too much, but we prefer generally to focus more on the use cases and the power delivery aspects based on the batteries uh, that Rivian, GM, Ford, Mercedes, Audi, you know, they're all publishing these numbers. And now we have specific announcements from SK and LG Chem on the gigawatt hour capacity of these new plants. So we prefer to look at things like, okay, how much, how many of the chargers are going to corridor charging? on the interstates and the highways. How, how many are going to workplace? How many are going to residential? And what we focus most on is the public infrastructure. And by public, we mean it should be publicly accessible to all and open. So there's no proprietary system, no proprietary plug. It has to be the universal plug. And so we're mapping that out um, in terms of how much investment is needed. And we believe that the $7.5 billion 
in the Senate bipartisan package is great, but it's only a down payment on what is necessary. So we've estimated that anywhere at a minimum from 30 to 40 billion will be necessary over the next, you know, 10, 12 years to uh, get to where we want to go. And roughly speaking, what would that look like? Where you want to go? In in terms of power delivery, it's a huge number of gigawatt hours. Um, so I don't have the numbers at my fingertips, but some utilities and some, um, you know, on the energy delivery side, we are talking about an increase in, in, in load of, you know, instead of utilities growing at close to 0.5% because of energy efficiency, they'll, they'll be growing in the 1.5 to 2% range uh, annually. Uh, we as a nation, as we electrify transportation, uh, will, you know, there's going to be a significant increase in use, probably 15 to 20% over the next 20 years. And then you throw in buildings and some industrial uses that are going to electrify, it's even greater than that. So it's this is a very substantial um, transformation. So yeah, the 500,000 number is a useful metric and we like to use that when we go around to the states and talk. But really for utilities and for vendors, the charging station folks, um, it's really, you know, what type of charger do we put in? What's the power level? Uh, where is it going to be located? And all of those things lead to the alleviation of what you call range anxiety, Marty. So we got to get at range anxiety because people don't want to buy EVs. Generally, one of the biggest reasons is because of range anxiety. They feel they're going to run out of fuel. The stations are not there. The other reason, major reason, is cost, upfront capital cost. Still more expensive for an EV over a conventional auto, but that's changing too. Mm-hmm. So um, help people that don't have... Um, EVs or people that don't think of this at the macro level understand uh, most people that get an EVs do they get a charger in the home right and what percentage of the time will they have to have their car charged away from the home um, will most of the EVs be used for commuting or do you see them ultimately taking the plat- place of gas cars and going long distance driving on vacation occasionally yeah, for the last 10, 15 years, several of the EVs, especially, you know, there are two basic types. This is kind of EV 101 type stuff, but plug-in hybrids are, it's a plug-in, but it also has a small, usually a four-cylinder gasoline engine that helps it go beyond the electric range. So think of the the Chevy Volt, the Honda Clarity, Audi makes a number of what we call PHEVs, plug-in EVs. So those those, it's interesting. You know, we have one of those in our family and we use it both for in-city driving and longer distance too. Longer distance, we don't like to consume gasoline, but it gives you that extra oomph or feeling of comfort if you're going on an intercity journey, you know, that you're going to have enough fuel to get there. But the industry is clearly moving towards what we call BEVs or pure battery electric vehicles. So that's what the Ford Lightning 150 is about that Ford announced um, recently and big announcement on investments yesterday. That's what the e-Hummer from GM is doing, the Audi e-tron. So those, these are big cars, big vehicles that have longer ranges. And of course, Tesla has done a wonderful job also of increasing the range of the car through better um, 
larger batteries, more efficient batteries, and better drivetrains, and various efficiencies in the electric vehicle. And there's this race now between Lucid Air, their new vehicle, and the Tesla Model 3 to see who has over 500 miles in range. Lucid Air appears to be ahead. So my point is that some of the researchers of EVs in our national laboratories and the think tanks have been focused on the past. You know, when saying people use their PHEVs, their plug-ins, and their EVs only for in-city driving, people drive up to 35, 40 miles a day. That's all they're going to use it for. But uh, I disagree with that. With this increase in range and capacity of the battery and the increased comfort of the car, we're, we're seeing a lot more use for intercity travel, for going to the national parks, and of course, Rivian just introduced its new vehicle, the light truck vehicle that is getting great reviews. And they're targeting that vehicle for the outdoors. So national parks, uh, national forests, go hiking, go skiing, whatever. So, So I guess what I'm saying is that we don't know yet, but what I can tell you is the old patterns of using a Nissan Leaf or a shorter range vehicle just for in-city driving for an EV, those days are over. And I think the, the paradigm is shifting to kind of a mix, but there's definitely going to be longer range uh, with these bigger batteries, and hopefully we can get the infrastructure in as well. Okay, so you made mention the fact that utilities are going to see their electric load go up as transportation is uh, electrified along with other changes in building infrastructure, etc. So talk a bit what that means in terms of generation as we move to a a more sustainable, more renewable mix in in generation. And then also, what does it mean for the grid? How is the grid currently constituted going to be able to plug all these pieces together and what kind of investment is needed in transmission and distribution to enable all of this? Yeah, so three things, generation, transmission, and then energy efficiency or end use or the efficient use of electricity. So let's deal with generation first. We will probably need more generation, but we don't know exactly yet how much and how. Um, obviously, many of the states have adopted clean energy plans or an RPS that requires increasing amounts of of wind and solar and renewable generation. So that will probably provide an impetus for for those clean energy sources. Um, But the, the grid is going to become, so let me get to transmission. The transmission issue is going to be dependent. I think we're going to need quite a bit more transmission just because not so much of EVs, But just with decarbonization, we are shutting down large um, coal plants that are far from load. um, And we are building wind and solar, utility-scale wind and solar, far from load, like in the Dakotas or offshore wind off of New Jersey and different places. So we are going to need quite a bit more transmission. Whether or not we need um, enough Some of the amounts that certain advocates are putting out there, I don't know yet, because I think we are also going to see more distributed resources, clean resources, zero carbon resources at the state and local level. So what that mix is going to be, we don't know yet, but definitely we're going to need more transmission. Now, on the distribution side, um, 
EVs, as you know, can be used as a distributed energy resource. Um, they're flexible. Yes, they are mobile, and they need to be plugged in uh, for the grid operator or the utility to use them. But if they are plugged in, uh, they can be used for uh, demand response, um, you know, price signals. They could be used, uh, although the Ford solution on this for the 150 is working with Sunrun on kind of a home energy management system for backup power, which is great. Um, but if these are going to be integrated actually into the grid, not just the home, uh, you know, we have to go through interconnection standards, safety issues, and all sorts of stuff. But that day is coming. So my point is that with storage, demand response, with EVs entering the distribution grid, we have a lot more. It's a much more complex system to run and manage for the utility and the grid operator, but it offers a lot of load uh, management flexibility. So my last point is energy efficiency. So we need to continue the efforts on energy efficiency. And many states, as you know, 32 states, I think 33 states have energy efficiency, some sort of a mandate, a goal, which is aspirational. So these need to continue, but they're going to have to be modified a little bit because we're talking about load growth with EVs coming into the system, significant load growth. And at the same time, we need to continue to use um, our electricity efficiently. So, for example, on decoupling, on rate design, on these targets and the way they're set, we're probably, uh, the states and the PUCs, um, we're all going to have to rethink how we, how we look at these issues because, you know, it's a new era. So you have pressure pressure of low growth on one side, and then you want con continued pressure on the downside with efficiency. So it's going to be an interesting time, Marty, for a rate design, for program design, and trying to combine all these together. One thing that worries me, and I see this in my state of Washington, I see it in California, Massachusetts, New York, some of these, quote, uh, very forward-leaning states, on decarbonization, they're passing bills and doing these programs uh, separately um, in silos. And they're not thinking holistically about, okay, we're shutting coal plants down over here or natural gas, we're increasing load with EVs, we still have decoupling for energy efficiency, we wanna go higher there. Oh, and we have storage over here, we have an order on storage. And so we need to find ways to bring this together because the utilities, still have to operate the grid uh, reliably or ERCOT or KISO or PJM as a grid operator. And if we have all these different silos and different parts of both generation and end use, it's not going to work. It's not going to work efficiently. So th this is why I really value this conversation with you. You've had 12 years of experience as a commissioner of ut regulating utilities in Washington. Yep. You are president of the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners, the body that knits all 50-plus states together, and um, District of Columbia, right, and a few others? Yes. Um, so let's let's look at, at a basic question here, which is uh, one of the things that's said about EV charging is if you can shift charging to the off-peak hours, usually in the nighttime, it it 
mitigates the need for additional generation as opposed to doing it during the peak drive time when demand is high. Yes. Um, as you look at it across all the states in this country, how many states today have something like a policy that would encourage EV users in their states to load up their energy off-peak? Is it most? Probably 30 to 35. Yeah, I'd say 30 to 35 um, states. You know, the traditional more conservative states in the Midwest, Marty, the Dakotas, uh, Nebraska, some of the southern states, although the southern states are starting to catch up now, um, have been behind on this. Uh, so I'd say about 30 to 35. I haven't done a recent count. And, and by that, I mean two things. One is that they focused on the electrification of transportation issues with workshops or notice and comment period or utility has filed something the commission has had to deal with it. Or they have a off-peak rate. They have some sort of a time-of-use rate. So there are two ways of managing this load, uh, Marty. One is passive and one is active. So the passive way, even though it's really not passive to the consumer, is time-of-use rates. So as you know, rate design is a little bit of a blunt instrument because you do averages during, during certain periods of the day, like 9 to 5. You average it out and come up with an off-peak rate. And it's not precise because load is peaking, generation and circuits are, some circuits are, are busier than others, right, in certain loads. But it generally works. So, so that's how most states have started uh, with the utility filing for some sort of a residential, usually, usually a residential time of use rate because 80% of the charging, over 80% is done at home. So that, that's very convenient for the consumers. Um, the active charging is what we do either through the OEM, through the telematics, can actively manage that load, like you can set your car to charge. Because one of the problems we have, if the TOU rates are all set to go off-peak with a cheap, cheaper rate at 11 p.m., we've found in certain <laughs> utilities that you have a mini-peak on a distribution feeder at 11 p.m., 11 to 11.30. So what we need to do is move that uh, charger to like 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. So we can do this through technology that Greenlots, uh, many others, uh, Uplight, um, many vendors uh, are doing this now. So that's called that's called managed charging. Also the utility, as I said, with a, with a good rate design, that maybe has a CPP rate, uh, a critical peak pricing rate that is necessary when the grid is really stressed. You know, those two, three, four days during the year when the grid is really stressed, the utility will send out a price signal saying it's really going to be expensive tomorrow. We're going to charge you 120 per kilowatt hour or 150 instead of 10 cents or 15 cents. Um, so that gets the attention of consumers, but that's more of an active measure. So if the if the consumer wants this cheaper rate of, of volumetric uh, rates off peak, uh, the utility uh, should have the ability to manage that load during really stressed times in the grid. So, so I think we're going to see both forms of uh, this management of load. We're going to see the time of use rates as well as managed charging. You know, some states like mine, when I was a commissioner. Uh, especially in the Northwest, because we don't ha have that much of a difference between nighttime 
and uh, daily generation costs because of the hydro, the hydroelectricity and the and the ability to store all that water, kind of like a battery. But most parts of the country, as you know, there's a much bigger difference uh, be, between night and day. So, but we were never able to get TOU rates through the commission because one of the big opponents was consumer advocates because they they felt it was. Um, not good for them or some of the industrial customers, the large industrial customers like Walmart, Kroger, the aluminum and steel industries would say, I want to opt out of this because we're managing our load. It's a very high load factor business uh, operation, you know, manufacturing steel or, or aluminum. We don't need your help. So my point is that um, TOU rates sound like they're easy to get sometimes, but in a more conservative state, with conservative regulatory culture, it's, you know, it's it's challenging. Let me push you on that just a little bit more. And, and that is, um, yeah. assuming we're moving towards a day when there will just be electric vehicles for transportation, Yeah, we can debate when it would happen, but the trend line seems pretty clear. Wouldn't that mean that there'll be a day when we it doesn't make sense for just 60% of the, the the states to offer time of day. Yeah. It'll have to be everywhere. And will that level out regulation across the country? Will there be yes. similar approaches? It will have to be everywhere, Marty. So I, I agree with you on that. But whether, so I think it's going to be, you know, like you and I used to talk when I was president of NARUC, right? And I said, I can only nudge certain states using my bully pulpit uh, so far. So which I try to do, as you know, on cybersecurity and safety of the natural gas pipeline infrastructure. I did that. And and Colette came in afterwards and other presidents do this too. So, and DOE does this, federal. So the federal agencies can offer carrots as well as sticks, but mostly carrots to get the states to move. But at some point, if the states don't move, you're right. Something's going to happen. It's either going to be a power outage or we're going to have reliability issues um, Texas is a different matter, ERCOT. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen in Texas. A lot of my friends uh, like Allison Silverstein and others are trying really hard to get that market organized and maybe even interconnected with the rest of the grid of North America more fully. But I don't know if that's going to happen. But but the other parts of the country, you know, we're, we're, we're probably going to see more uh, RTOs or RTO lights like we see with KISO, the energy imbalance market. We're going to see these ISO markets develop services for ancillary services coming out of EVs and flexible load management. Uh, we're, um, and, and, and so it's going to be a different world. And I agree with you that if we get 70, 50, 60, 70 percent of the fleet light duty and medium heavy duty electrified, we just need to have both these passive and active load management policies in place, because otherwise the system's not going to work. Last question I want to ask you about is the speed of adoption of EVs. Yeah. Currently, the United States has about 17% of the world EV fleet. Yeah. Europe has a third and China has 44%. Yep. Um, with four and a half million uh, cars compared to, what, about 1.8 million in the United States. So... If one assumes whoever has this technology will own the future, at least of transportation um, technology and industry, 
why is the United States lagging? Is it only a matter of time before we get leadership on this? And how, how serious is this lagging other Europe and China right now in your mind? Well, we are lagging for several important reasons. One is we've uh, we've abandoned under Trump the Paris Climate Accord. So, and, and even under previous administrations, we were not aggressive enough in adhering to our international obligations. This is my view, Phil Jones. But even as I was president of NARUC, as you know, I was pushing uh, with Gina McCarthy and the Obama administration for faster uh, retirement of coal plants under the CPP, the Clean Power Plant. So we've we've kind of been laggards there as opposed to Europe. This has been stronger. Uh, the other thing is we live in a federal system. And so we're not like the EU and China. The China is run by the Communist Party. They have state grid China that controls 90% plus of the grid. They basically tell the provinces, although there's a lot of give and take between the provinces and Beijing, but they developed a consensus. They developed some very significant incentives to push EVs all along. So they also have more of a long-term vision um, as an authoritarian state with a central party leadership. Once they come up with a vision about what industries they want to dominate, as we've seen with the, with the bridge and road initiative, they will go after that. Um, we, in our country, we're much more decentralized and democratic. So we have a lot of studies from uh, the national laboratories, from the national academies, USDOE and the states, and California's doing this, New York's doing that. So it's much harder to pull our country together. So it takes a bit of a crisis or a bit of a sense of urgency, like we're falling behind. And um, I hope I've been able to engender a little bit of that in two years of running around the country talking to state decision makers, because this has always been part of my message, is that we need to have a vibrant and a strong automotive, not just automotive, I call it, we call it e-mobility industry now. And because if we don't, we're going to lose, uh, we're going to lose out on this uh, these industries of the future. Europe is a different matter. Europe is kind of an interesting hybrid and Norway got a lot of attention, you know, at the Super Bowl with that General Motors ad. So a lot of us have known about the Norwegian story for a while, but Nor Norway, of course, is not part of the EU. So put that aside for a minute, but the EU has come up with good policies on batteries, battery consortium on emissions. They have very tight emissions. That's the other thing about us, Marty, is we've, in my view, we've become so fixated on corporate average fuel economy standards, CAFE, and this big fight we had in the Trump administration between California uh, and the federal administration that we just got lost in the weeds on that. And we lost about four or five years. And so, yeah, it's a combination of all those things. Those things don't happen in Europe. So they have a commission. They have a supported parliament. They support climate accords. And so it's easier, and they're smaller countries like the UK that's doing a great job now on clean transportation. So they're, they're able to move, even under a conservative Boris Johnson administration, who's, who's not, a, he's not a Labour Party guy, he's not a Green Party guy, he's a conservative guy. So, so anyway, those are some reasons about why we've fallen behind. Uh, but we're catching up, just like this announcement from Ford yesterday is positive. The announcements from General Motors 
and others. So I think we're getting there, but you know what they say about America, it takes it takes a few pokes to to awaken the uh, sleeping giant. So I think we're getting out of our slumber now and and we're getting activated. We've been poked. We've been poked a few times. Thanks, Phil. It's a pleasure talking to you. You're welcome. Thanks, Marty. Our guest has been Phil Jones, who's the executive director of EV Transportation Alliance. You have been listening to Grid Talk. Please send us feedback or questions at gridtalk at enroll.gov. And we encourage you to give the podcast a rating or review on your favorite platform. For more information, please subscribe at smartgrid.gov. Thanks for listening to Grid Talk, presented by the U.S. Department of Energy Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Subscribe through your favorite podcast provider or visit smartgrid.gov for more information.